Today we'll be going through Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 to 22. So Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Let's hear the word of God. Isaiah 2, verse 6. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? This is the word of our God. Let's pray for his help. Our God, as your people, we desire that you alone would be exalted. We gather for worship to exalt you, and we place your word here at the center of our worship because we desire to hear from you. And so we pray that you would be exalted by speaking your word to us. Give us understanding of what you are trying to communicate to us today when you inspired the prophet Isaiah to write these words. Help us to see you in your glory. Help us to see you in the grace of Jesus Christ. That he would be exalted in our lives. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I went on the youth retreat last weekend as one of the chaperones and uh, I got about six months worth of sermon illustrations from the retreat, but I will try to not uh, do that every week. But there was one event, one instance where I knew that this was the next sermon I was going to preach. I, you know, I read ahead and I'm thinking about the next sermon. And so then I witnessed this event and these words of Isaiah 2 came to my mind. At the end of the days, uh, when it gets dark outside, we're all sent to our rooms. And so there is a dorm room, a, a hall full of young men. 
And so what do these young men decide to do? Well, for some reason, they all started to take off their shirts and they started to flex their muscles. And they just walked around looking at each other's muscles and, and talking about each other's muscles and, and doing push-ups and, and pull-ups and trying to outdo one another in their flexing of their muscles. And literally, this verse 22 came to my mind. In their nostrils is breath. Of what account are they? Of what account is he? Here are these young men, so proud. Proud of their strength. They feel strong. They feel invincible. They can flex their muscles. And that's a normal thing to, to think in youth, that you're so strong. Do young men realize that they're just clay? And that in their nostrils is just breath? And that they are of no account? And one day those strong bodies will lie in a grave of dirt and will themselves turn into dirt. So, so why the macho mentality? Why the bravado? Why the bragging? Why the obsession with flexing yourself? Young girls have the same sort of pride, except it's not flexing their muscles. It's, it's taking selfies of themselves and posing and, and pursing their lips. Young girls, they're just dust in whose nostrils of breath, in, in what account, of what account are they? And yet this is the temptation, especially of youth, to think that, that you're strong, to think that you're something, and to want everybody to pay attention to you. But we all know that's not just limited to young people. This is what we're all like. We're all prideful. We all struggle with pride. We all desire to be approved and liked and for attention to be on ourselves. And so we flex. Now, in, in modern terms, some, some of you might not know this, but the young people these days, they use the word flex not just to talk about flexing your muscles, but it's anything that you do to make yourself look superior, to make yourself look powerful. And so somebody can flex by pulling up in a certain car or by walking in dressed a certain way or to just subtly hint at how much money they make or what job they work. All of that is what people today call flexing, drawing attention to yourself drawing attention to want people to think that you're something, you're important. This is what people do. It's all around us. Well, flexing is not new to our day. This is what was happening in 8th century Judah. Tiglath-Pileser III, he's cruising around the Middle East, Assyria. He's flexing his muscles, intimidating Israel and Egypt and the kingdom of Judah, He's violent, he's strong, he's impaling people on sticks, and everybody's looking at, at the king of Assyria and saying, wow, he's powerful, he's strong. We need to pay attention to him. And so some people, King Ahaz, they decided, he decided that his response would be to ally himself with the king of Assyria. I want to pay attention to the strong guy. I want to be on the strong guy's side because he will save me or before king ahaz were the days of king uzziah we read a few weeks ago in second chronicles 26 about king uzziah's prosperity and things were going well he had weapons he had built fortified towers he was prosperous financially the economy was good in the country and so people started to think, yes, this is, this is what we need. This is, this is what makes life good. Prosperity and safety through men like King Uzziah. And then we know from the rest of the story, Uzziah became proud. 
when he became strong. Because he was strong, he became proud. And so, this is what was happening with the people of Israel. Strength, prosperity, scary, violent guys who who look like they're powerful. These are the people that we need to worry about, think about. And they forgot. They forgot the Lord. They forgot that they were the nation whose God is the Lord. That their safety, their prosperity was to come from the Lord. Not King Uzziah. Not King Ahaz. Not by allying yourself with the king of Assyria, but the Lord. And so this problem in the 8th century is a problem still around today. We put too much stock in other people, in ourselves. And so the clear lesson is there in verse 22. Stop regarding man. His nostrils just have breath. Of what account is he? Stop obsessing. Stop caring so much about people. But look to the Lord. Trust the Lord. Worship the Lord. Give your life to the Lord. So that's the main idea of this passage. Uh, We're going to go through this not verse by verse in order because Isaiah repeats himself. There are three sections that that have basically the same lesson and he kind of just develops the the theme. So we're going to go through it topically and hopefully you're not too confused. Uh, We'll be jumping around a little bit in different parts of the passage looking at different verses. But we'll start by looking at the problem. What is the problem here in this passage that Isaiah is dealing with? Well, the presenting problem is idolatry. So you go to the doctor, and you go to the doctor because you're experiencing some sort of pain or discomfort. So you might say you have this pain in your stomach. That's what we call the presenting problem. And so Isaiah addresses first the presenting problem. Here's externally the symptoms that you are seeing in your life. The symptoms in Judah are idolatry. So let's read again. You see this in verses 6 to 8. Speaking of God, says, God, you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands what their own fingers have made. So at this time in Isaiah's day, they are rejecting God and focusing on man. And by focusing on man, the symptom that this leads to is idolatry. So notice that they are depending here on on human things. And you see this in different ways. First in verse 6, you have the fortune tellers. So they are not content with what God has clearly revealed in his word. They need special human insight. Some some man or woman who has secret insight about the future. This is what the Philistines were doing. This is what the other nations are doing. We want to know what the other nations know. So that we can know what's going to happen in the future. And we can control what's going to happen in the future. So Let's reject what God has revealed in his word. Let's try to find out some secrets through fortune tellers. It's depending on human insight. They're also depending on human resources. In verse 7, full of silver and gold and treasures, accumulating horses and chariots. Well, those horses and chariots are coming from Egypt. This is exactly what God told them not to do In Deuteronomy 17, he told the king not to accumulate for himself many horses. Why? Because this is what the Egyptians do. The Egyptians depend on their technology, on their riches and their resources to fight their battles. The king of Israel was not supposed to be like that. 
So the reason they're accumulating all of these resources is so that they can have themselves to depend upon. They can control their own lives themselves. They don't need to depend upon the Lord. And then we see human manipulation of events in verse 8. Notice in verse 8 when it talks about idols, it says these are the works of their hands. And then it says it again, that their own fingers have made. So Isaiah is trying to get us to see that the problem here with idolatry is that they are trying to make things happen on their own. That's what idolatry was. It's a way for humans to manipulate their lives. You need food. You need crops. You need rain. This is what's appealing about idolatry. In their mind, if I need food, I can just go out of my backyard, put some clay together, make a little statue, bow down and pray to the statue, appease the statue, and I'll get rain. And I'll get food for my family. I don't have to worry about God. I don't have to follow the Lord. I don't have to obey Him. I can make things happen. I want to win a war? I'll make an idol. Satisfy that idol, and that idol will help me win the war. So you see, it's all about how I can control my life. So this is the problem in the 8th century. And this is the problem in every society. I uh, googled, what is the most selfish generation? And the funny thing is, Half of the articles say baby boomers are the most selfish generation. And the other half said millennials are the most selfish generation. So you know what that means? We're all selfish. Every generation is selfish. We always think about ourselves. I saw that there was a Time Magazine issue that came out about millennials. And it said they are the me, me, me generation. And of course, it's easy to say that. But the reality is every generation is a me, me, me generation. If you read people who uh, talk about culture and why we are the way that we are, how we ended up here, a lot of people talk about the Enlightenment. You know, the Enlightenment was this philosophy that, that man and man's reason is, is all that matters. And so it's all about man. And the Enlightenment put man at the center. And that's the cause of all of our problems. Well, if you read the Bible, you see that man has always put himself at the center. That didn't start in the 1700s. There is a guy named Protagoras who said, man is the measure of all things. Man determines truth. Man determines what's right and wrong. He said that in 400 BC. This isn't anything new. This is how it is today. So just like then, today we think that with our knowledge, with our ability that we think that we can control our lives in the future, with our resources and our wealth and prosperity that we have, that we have everything under control. We have this pride and arrogance that we can control our lives. Maybe you've heard of this thing called solar geoengineering. Some people, they want to send dust particles into outer space to block out the rays of the sun. I don't know if it's outer space or the atmosphere, but... They want to block out the sun because they think we can solve global warming. We, we can stop it all from happening because we have the knowledge and technology to avoid what we think is going to happen in the future. What could possibly go wrong? Blast some particles to block out the sun. We think in our day-to-day -day life we can control the future, the events of our lives. 
Do you remember? Uh, I'm, I'm sure this probably happened also here in New York, although I wasn't here in 2020. Do you remember when the pandemic came and, and everything shut down and stores ran out of toilet paper and everybody rushed to get toilet paper? Remember that? It reminded all of us, I think, that we actually don't control our lives. Even something as simple and basic as, as toilet paper is depending on this whole chain, this whole supply chain of things that need to happen. You don't control that. You don't control factories and then trucks and then stores being opened. And so we think that everything's under our control. We think that because of our prosperity and our knowledge, our resources, we can manipulate everything. But we need to remember that this whole world is under the hand of the providence of God. We can confess and profess to believe in the providence of God, but not really live as if God is holding all things together. God makes everything happen. God is the one who feeds you. God is the one who provides for you. God is the one who keeps you safe. He protects you. He's protecting our country. You know why we don't think about that? Because we just throw billions of dollars at something. If a, if a natural disaster just happens, we, we just send FEMA and it's billions of dollars. And we don't even give a second thought. We just throw hundreds of billions at, at the military and we think the military protects us. Of course, God uses those things, but it's the providence of God that is working constantly, daily, throughout our lives to give you all of these good things. So the presenting problem is idolatry. But the underlying problem is pride. It's the pride of man that leads him to try to control these events. And so look what Isaiah says later in verses 12 to 16. He says, The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, every high tower and against every fortified wall and against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. Ten times you see those words, against all. You see, Isaiah is just hammering this point. God is against all of these things that are lifting themselves up against all. God. God will be exalted. He will bring man low. But in all of these different ways, man tries to exalt himself. He tries to lift himself up. And so in this passage, it's the cedars of Lebanon. It's the fancy houses built out of cedar. It's the tall mountains and hills where you look to these things to protect you. Because you can look out upon your enemy and you can be in a secure position because you are on these tall hills. These are the things that the people brag about. These are the things that people look to against their high towers. The prosperity of the ships filled with luxurious goods. God is against all these things that man uses to exalt himself. This is the problem, man exalting himself. So now, second, we see the consequence. Here's what will result as a result of man's problem of pride. Man will be humbled. So verse 12, again, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud. Think about that phrase. The Lord of hosts has a day. 
This day is on the calendar. This day has been set by God. It's like when you say that you have something on your calendar. If someone maybe invites you to do something, you might say, I can't be there that day because that day is my son's birthday. That day is my parents' anniversary. I have to go see my parents. And so it doesn't really matter what, what else is going on, what people want to invite you to. The day is the day. You can't change the birthday. You can't change an anniversary. It's set. It's on the calendar. It is a fixed day. That's what God is saying. He has a day. This day has been fixed. This day is the day when God will come against the lofty. And it says this is the day when God will arise. He says this at the end of verse 19 and the end of verse 21. See, he says it multiple times. The terror of the Lord will come, the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. God has set a day when he will rise. You notice the highs and lows of this passage. Man lifts himself up. But ironically, he lifts himself up by bowing down to an idol. By bowing down, he lifts himself up. And so God says he will arise. God must rise. And when he arises, man will be brought low. Man will enter the caves of the rocks. Man will try to crawl into the holes of the ground. He'll try to get as low as possible when God arises. And when God arises and man is brought low, God is exalted. All that God has to do to humble man is to rise. When he rises in his majesty, his terror, he terrifies the earth. When we look at suffering in the world, we look at persecuted believers, we look at uh, everything happening in, in Gaza and in the Middle East. We have prayers in the Psalms that we call imprecatory prayers. Break the teeth of the wicked. Those are prayers in the Bible. Praying things like break the teeth of the wicked, praying that God will end evil and end wickedness and deal with all of this suffering. We're praying that God will arise. We're praying that God will arise on that day. It would be nice, it would be wonderful if every wicked person would repent and find salvation. And we want that. We want people to repent. But we know that they're not all going to. And so... We pray for God to arise. Terrify the earth. Bring your judgment and your justice upon the wicked. Because when we look around right now, all that we see is we see a lot of wickedness happening. We see that there is much suffering. And, and it might seem to us, God, God, aren't you going to do something? God, aren't you going to intervene? Well, this is the prayer. We pray knowing that God has fixed the day. The day will come. He will rise. He will terrify the earth. We look forward to that day. So when God arises, man is brought low. Go back to verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter, he's talking to the people. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Read also in verse 19, a similar statement. Verse 19, people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. These people are so afraid of the terror of God 
because of their own wickedness and his holiness, that they will enter the caves and the holes. The irony here is that these people are literally digging their own graves. The caves were the places where people would be buried. And the holes in the ground, if there's a mass destruction and you don't have time or a place to, to give people a burial, you just dig a giant pit. People would go into the holes of the ground. And so people are trying to avoid death by digging their own graves. But when God arises, they won't be able to escape. That is where they will die. The holes in the ground and the caves of the rock, they won't be able to escape the terror when God rises and shows his majesty. And then when man is brought low, the last thing we see is that they will throw away their idols. He starts saying that in verse 18, the idols will utterly pass away. And then down in verse 20, in that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs. So here's more irony. They will throw their idols into the caves full of bats. So they, they had so much trust and dependence upon their resources, their wealth, their prosperity, and their idols. And one day those idols will be covered in bat mess. They will be treated like trash and junk. Because when people face the terror of the Lord, they realize their idols won't protect them. They won't do anything for them. And so they'll throw them away. And they'll be seen as the worthless junk that they really are. All of these idols that they trust in become nothing. So the problem is idolatry rooted in pride consequence is that God will rise up and terrify the earth. Man will be humbled. The idols will be cast away. So here's the lesson. We have the lesson in a statement and then a command. The statement is in verse 11 and repeated in verse 17. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. So that's the statement. That's the lesson. The Lord alone will be exalted. So in light of that, here's the command. Verse 22. Verse 22, right at the end, is, it's uh, the clincher to drive the point home to, to us. Verse 22. So stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? That's the command that we're going to focus on the rest of our time. Stop regarding man. Some of your Bibles might say something like, cease from man. The idea is like, cease and desist. Stop. It's like if someone is going on and on and on about something and you just tell them, stop it. Just stop with all that stuff. Stop talking about that all the time. That's what God is trying to say here. Stop it with all that stuff about man. Why do you keep talking about man? Why do you keep obsessing about man? Why are you so focused on man? Why are you celebrating and worshiping man so much? Just stop. Cease from man. So the word regarding is, is interpreting what God through Isaiah is trying to say. Man is of no account, so stop giving him an account. Stop thinking about him so much. Stop caring so much. Cease from man. Why? 
Why? Because the explanation is in him and in his nostrils is breath. That sounds funny, doesn't it? That's a strange thing to say. Stop it with this man stuff because in his nostrils is breath. And so we get the idea, I think you understand, that the idea is it's only breath. He's just breath in his nostrils. The irony here is that man is idolatrous. Man is making idols here. So God reminds man, us, that man is just something in whose nostrils is breath. See, to make an idol, you go get some clay. You put some clay together in a shape, and you have human-shaped clay. Or, if you could access it, you would get some metal. But where does metal come from? You dig it out of the earth. You dig out your metal, you get your metal together, you put metal together in the form of a man. What did God do when he made man? God got some dust and he put it together in the human form of a man. What's the difference between Adam laying there on the ground on day six and a piece of clay shaped like a man. The difference is God. God put breath in his nostrils. God made man come alive. So all God has to do is remove the breath. And when God takes away the breath out of our nostrils, you just turn into a form of dirt, a shape made out of dust, just like the idols that these men were making, bowing down to. And do you control the breath in your nostrils? Do you command yourself to breathe? Can you force yourself to breathe? No. If God removes the breath, your breath is gone. So why do we make idols out of people who are made of dust? And we forget about the God who gives them the breath. Why do we care so much about people instead of caring about the Lord? It's the Lord who gives man breath. And so without the Lord, of what account is he? He is nothing. So stop regarding man. How do we regard man? How do we give attention to man? Well, it can happen through our hero worship. I think God made us to look up to people, to have heroes, uh, because we're to look to him. We're made in his image. We're made to follow a leader. We're made to follow him, and especially the Lord Jesus Christ who would come into the world. And so we were made to follow Christ, but we're sinners. And so because of our sin, we, we twist that desire to follow someone, follow a powerful, important leader, and instead we like to follow other people. And so in our day, in our time, we have these people called celebrities. And people love celebrities. People think about and care about celebrities. I, was, uh, I listened to sports radio sometimes, uh, and when I'm driving... And uh, a few weeks ago, they were talking about the New York Jets. The Jets were playing the Chiefs. And so they were talking about the, the, the Jets are bad and they're not going to win anything, but they're playing the Chiefs. And maybe you know, but Taylor Swift is dating a Chiefs player. 
And so they were talking about how the ratings are going to skyrocket because teenage girls are going to watch the terrible Jets team play, not because they want to see the Jets, but they want to see if the camera is going to pan to Taylor Swift cheering on her new boyfriend. And that's what our world is. That's what people are doing. People are obsessed with these silly celebrities. I've never understood endorsements. Famous people get paid money to endorse a product. So a basketball player, LeBron James, let's say he gets $10 million a year to endorse Sprite. Now, Sprite is not just giving charity to LeBron. Uh, Sprite is making money off of this endorsement. So this is what's crazy to me. Someone is going to walk in a store and they're going to see Sprite and Mountain Dew. And some kid is going to say, Mommy, buy Sprite because LeBron James is in a Sprite commercial. It's all stupid. It's silliness. People are making millions off of a celebrity endorsement. This is the kind of world we live in. The problem with obsession over these things is, well, there, there are several problems. One of them is that then we start to think the way the world thinks. You start to look at people and put a value on them because they sing or play a sport or they're politicians. And so you become desensitized to their sin. You don't see them the way that God sees them. God looks at these people. And yes, they're made in his image. He values them. But he looks at them and he sees immorality, adulteries, divorce after divorce after divorce, obsession and love of money and complete rejection of him. This is what God sees in them. And then we start to look up to these people and value them and love them and attach our, our emotions to things that celebrities and athletes and politicians do. And it desensitizes us to the reality of sin. So, stop regarding man. Stop obsessing over people. Another way that we regard men is maybe especially for those who are younger. Think about the people that you want to be like. Maybe it's not a celebrity, but just people you know. People at school. People that are around you. People that you want to be friends with. How do you decide who you want to be like? Who do you want to fit in with? What crowd do you want to go with? How do you decide that? Well, some people have what the world values. They look a certain way. They have a certain amount of money. They have certain kinds of stuff. They have a certain charisma or personality. And so you look. You look at that person in your grade or that person two grades above you and you say, I want to be like them. They're cool and I want to hang out with them. Why? Why? They're just men and women in whose nostrils is breath. Or if you're younger, think about the people that you want to be around. Who do you try to be around? Who did Jesus try to be around? Jesus went after the lowly and the outcast. And so a Christian looks around at, at school or around the friends, the group of friends, and doesn't look at the person with the charismatic personality or the person who seems to have a lot of money and try to sort of fawn all over them and worship them and want to be like them. No. The Christ-like person looks at the group and says, who's, who's being treated as an outcast here? 
Who's not being included? Who is lonely? Who is shy? Who doesn't look like they have a lot of money and so maybe they don't understand all the references because they're not going to see all the movies that we're seeing or they don't have all of the stuff that we have. The Christ-like person says, I want to pursue that person. I want to spend time with that person. Because my regard is not for man. My regard is Christ. The glory of God. And I want to please the Lord. I don't want to be seen as cool within my group. And then the last person that we need to stop regarding is yourself. Stop regarding yourself. Of what account are you? Why are you so worried about what people think of you? Why are you so worried about people liking you and finding approval? Why are you so worried about the way that you appear? Stop thinking about yourself. Of what account are you and me? God gives us breath. God gives us life that we might glorify him. Let's not use our lives to focus on ourselves. But there is one person that we are to regard. And uh, let's close by going to Isaiah 52. Turn there. And uh, you probably know this passage. But notice, I'll point out the words that Isaiah uses, starting in Isaiah 52, verse 13. This is what we call the song of the suffering servant. In verse 13, Isaiah says, this is God, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Isaiah, did he make a mistake here? Uh, didn't he say 50 chapters ago, the Lord alone will be exalted? Alone, that means alone, right? That means the only one. But look, God says there will be a servant who will be high, lifted up, and exalted. But this servant, we find out, is lowly. And so go to chapter 53, verse 3. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The word in verse 3, for rejected, is the same word that's used in chapter 2, verse 22, with the word cease. Reject man. Cease from man. But now here we see the servant who will be exalted was rejected. People stopped regarding this man. And then at the end of that verse, when it says, we esteemed him not, it uses the exact same word that is also there in verse 22 of chapter 2. Of what account is he? Or in other words, of what esteem is he? So here this verse, verse 3 says, we considered him of no account. We stopped regarding him. I don't think it's a coincidence that Isaiah is using these same words. There is a man that we did stop regarding, that we did reject, that we considered of no account, but he's the one we should 
consider. He's the one we should honor and should worship and should exalt. And yet this is why this servant came. He came to bear our sins. He came to be bruised for our transgression, to take the punishment upon himself that we deserve. He came to save us from our sin, our sin of regarding the wrong people, our sins of pride, our sins of giving too much account to those who are of no account. This is why he came. He was rejected. We esteemed him not. And yet because he died in the place of sinners, God highly exalted him. The Lord alone will be exalted. The Lord will exalt his servant. Because his servant is the one who saves sinners like us. So may we look to the servant, to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, but look to Christ. Exalt him with your life. Let's pray. Lord God, you are worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. All praise belongs to you and to the Lamb. We thank you for the Lamb, for Jesus Christ, who was rejected. Lord, we pray that we would worship him, love him more, and to stop caring so much about others and about ourselves, but exalt him in our lives. May he be exalted in our church. And we look forward to the day when he is lifted up and exalted and all the kings of the earth and all nations bow to him. We pray that this day might come. We ask in his name. Amen.